Our text for this morning is going to be in 1 Peter, and we're continuing our series there. We're going to be in chapter 4. I'd like to share a story with you um, that was on my mind as I prepared this um, sermon for us today. Um, When I was young, my dad and I would go up to Utah. Um, I grew up in San Diego, and we would go up to Utah just outside of Zion National Park um, to go camping, and it was awesome. Right? There were no rules for me up there. Right? I was used to being at home where there's all kinds of rules. But when you go camping, you, know, you can throw axes and no one like, says anything. You can start fires as long as they're in a fire pit and they're small. I learned that lesson. Um, but it was awesome. I enjoyed the freedom. And I remember one year we went up there in the middle of winter. And I remember it was the middle of winter because it was like 10 degrees outside. And the snow was like up to my knees. And at some point... Um, we, we actually had to stay in a cabin because we couldn't get to our property up there um, just because the snow was too deep. We couldn't make it in the van. And so we ended up staying in a cabin. And at one point, we must have gotten like cabin fever or something because we had this brilliant idea of like, let's hike out to the property and see what it looks like covered in snow. We had never seen it like that. And so with visions of just untouched snow and beautiful, huge ponderosa pine trees and everything, we started to to trudge out there, and I mean trudge, like, and I wasn't very smart about it, right? Again, from San Diego, never really seen snow like this before. Um, I didn't even have boots. My dad had to, you know, was like, you better leave your tennis shoes here. We're gonna, you're gonna need these boots. And so I began to, we began to hike out there, and not long into our hike, I was exhausted, right? Again, to my knees. So I'm just kind of like trudging, kicking snow, like I had no idea how to walk in snow didn't have any snowshoes or anything like that and at one point uh, while I'm complaining he turns around and like just looks at these two paths right where he's kind of like lifting his feet up and putting them down like this and making these holes and I'm just sort of like zigzagging across you know the snow um, just like you know hunched down and everything it was comical but at one point he turns around he says like hey you're not doing this right like why don't you follow my example why don't you lift your feet and put them in the holes I'm making and it'll go a lot easier. And sure enough, (laughs) you know, he was right. And I started to, you know, lift my feet and put them right where his feet had fallen. And it became much easier, right? I'm not going to say it was easy. Um, It was probably one of the most exhausting things I've ever done. Uh, But we made it out there. Um, And I, I thought of this memory this week as I thought about what it means for us to follow Christ, right? Um, not only did, did Christ set an example for us to follow, but he gave us his boots and made a way for us to God, uh, which is just kind of cool. And I thought about that this week. Now, our section for us today is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But we're going to begin by looking at the first two verses here, where it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now there's two things I want to make sure we don't miss in this section. And the first one is that Christ's suffering has set us free. And the second thing I don't want us to miss that we're going to talk about is that by suffering, Christ set an example for us that we should follow. Now I've put them in that order because... Peter puts him in that order. Peter knew that without Christ setting us free from sin, we would have no hope to be able to follow him, right? So let's take a closer look at how Christ's suffering has set us free. 
Now Peter starts here by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now what suffering do you think Peter has in mind here? Um, For those of you who are here last week, we heard from uh, Pastor Chad, talked about in chapter 3, verse 18, right? If we back up a few verses, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So what Peter has in mind here is the suffering by which Christ bought your salvation, right? The righteous being Jesus laid down his life for the unrighteous, that's where we come in, so that he might bring us to God. In fact, the Old Testament uh, in Isaiah, it tells us that he was pierced for our sins, right? This is talking about Jesus, our Messiah. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I love that section. By his wounds, we are healed. I mean, this is the truth that will set you free. We participate in the suffering, in the death, and in the resurrection of Christ through faith in him. We see this in Romans 6, right? Now listen closely because I think this passage really um, helps us understand our passage for today when we, when we understand how Christ's suffering and death becomes our own through faith. In Romans 6, 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And then in verse 11, it says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we see that Christ's suffering was our suffering, right? Christ's death was our death, and Christ's resurrection is our resurrection if we place our faith and hope in him. Now, if you're interested in reading more about that, I encourage you just to write down Romans 6 um, and take a deeper look at that. So if these things that Christ accomplished for us are ours now, shouldn't that change how we live? That's what Peter's going to next. It brings us to our second thing we don't want to miss from this section, which is that Christ set an example for us by suffering. So because of all Christ has done, you are able to, as Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has ceased or whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, if you're like me, the words that jump right out at you there are ceased from sin. Some translations say done with sin. So let's spend some time with this statement from Peter that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. It's important for us to understand what is and isn't being said here, right? Because whenever I read a verse like this, I immediately call to mind my sin, the things I struggle with, and I begin to worry. I start freaking out because even as a believer, I still sin, right? Does anyone else do that? (laughs) How many of us can relate to King David in Psalm 51 where he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Who here knows their sins? You don't have to raise a hand, but (laughs) you can. I can remember as a child, right, the church I grew up in, 
Um, we had a time in the service set apart for confession absolution. It was a silent confession. And I remember even as a little kid, like I didn't need any help, right? Sometimes you'd see people, they'd go, okay, like, you know, it's time now. Like, let's confess our sins. And, you know, people would bow their heads. And some people are just kind of like, huh, I wonder, like, what did I do? Like, I didn't need any help, right? My mind went immediately. I wasn't like a terrible kid, I don't think. But I didn't sit there wondering what I could confess to God, right? I was, I was ready. I was ready for confession. I was ready um, for the pastor to announce forgiveness um, on behalf of the work of Christ. And to this day, I don't need help making a list of my sins, right? I know them because they bother me. Who here relates to that? Who, who here worries sometimes that they're a fraud and not really a Christian because of sin they still struggle with? Now, if we're going to follow David's confession, right, that he knows his sins, shouldn't we also follow his example of crying out to God for a solution? Reading on in Psalm 51, we find this prayer. David says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew, excuse me, renew a right spirit within me. When you need a clean heart, there's only one place to find it, right? In Christ. When you are troubled by your sin, run to Jesus. Be glad that the Spirit is at work within you and is convicting you of your sin. Be glad that the Spirit is telling you you need a Savior. Run to the cross and not away from it. Because that is where Christ bought your forgiveness with his precious blood. And knowing that we are sinful is actually part of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to follow Jesus. So what Peter here is is saying here is not that a Christian will never sin. What he's saying is that because of what Christ has done, Christians no longer live for sin. We're going to see this more clearly as we get to verse 3, but there's a few more things that need to be said about Christ as our example. So Christ set for us an example by living for the will of his Father, right? We see this all throughout the Gospels, right? Often I'll answer questions with, you know, I come to do the will of my Father um, many, many times. And if living for God causes us to suffer physically, we should have the same mind as our Lord Jesus who suffered with joy. Peter said in chapter 2.19, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing. So God is, is mindful of us when we suffer. And by the way, th- this is the kind of suffering we're talking about, right, um, today. I want this to be clear, like, There are other types of suffering, right? Health issues, financial issues. There's always the consequences of our own actions. You know, that's my least favorite type of suffering. But those are broken world kind of things, right? Like we we experience those and those are definitely suffering. But the suffering in view today is that Acts 5 kind of suffering, right? Where the apostles have been preaching about Christ crucified and everything that does for us, been preaching the gospel to people And the Jewish leaders called them in and told them to stop and beat them and sent them on their way. Um, And it says that they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. Like 
That's the kind of suffering Peter has in mind here. Now, what does it mean that whoever has suffered has ceased from sin? This is an interesting phrase to link suffering um, with being done with sin. But I believe it references the refining nature of suffering. Right? And the New Testament talks about repeatedly in different areas that um, suffering actually refines us. It removes impurities um, in our lives, in our faith, and actually helps center us on God. When I'm suffering for Christ, suffering for standing up for Christ, I'm, I'm living for the will of the Father, right? I'm no longer living for human passions. Uh, we see this at the end of verse 2 where Peter says that we live no longer for human passions, um, but for the will of God. And so this lifestyle contrasts with the world around us, right? It's the difference between darkness and light. So Peter continues here by contrasting their new lives in Christ with the sinful lives they have been redeemed from. In verse 3, he says this, for the, time that is, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, which just means to insult you or try to destroy your reputation, to speak ill of you. The time that has passed is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. As a people transformed by the suffering of Christ, that lifestyle of running after pleasures of the flesh is no longer suitable. We have been set apart by God to do his will. Now, I love the way that Peter puts this, right? The time that has passed suffices. That means however long it was, right? If you, if you were saved when you were 8 or 80, like the time that's passed is enough. That means you've lived in sin long enough. You've chased after worldly pleasures long enough. Let it go and leave it behind. Now, maybe today you're struggling with a particular sin. Maybe when I, when I said who here knows their sin, that, that came to your mind because it, it, you struggle with it maybe even entangles you. Uh, maybe you've returned to old ways of thinking or behaviors that you know are not God's will for you. If you're a Christian and you've grown comfortable in your sin, hear Peter's words today. Enough. Enough. Run to the cross and be free from living in sin. Confess, fight, suffer if needed. Beg God for a clean heart, believe in him, and receive the forgiveness that gives you the power to leave that sin behind. Reach out to a brother or sister in Christ, someone you respect, and ask for help, because we're in this together. Amen? All right. Let's take a closer look at this list that Peter's made here. What appears to be the common thread? I think the thread is that these behaviors are the behaviors of people who are living for today, living for their life on this earth. It's kind of an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of culture, right? These are the lifestyles of those who are following their appetites around from one pleasure to the next. And interestingly, these practices were even seen as patriotic. Orgies and drinking parties were how they worshipped their gods. That's why Peter calls it out as 
lawless idolatry. Other translations say abominable idolatry, which I think is, is even better. Um, just disgusting idolatry. We were created to live in communion with our God, and instead he finds us kind of wallowing in the mud, just getting filthy together, thinking nothing of the true God. These abominable behaviors are closely associated with pagan temple worship and celebrations in honor of their gods. This is part of how they believe they would earn favor with their local and national deities, right, by celebrating celebrating the gods through parties and orgies, basically. This is one of the problems for the early Christians, right, is they couldn't go along with this. They couldn't join in the festivities um, they knew that wasn't how God had created us to live, how he created us to be. And so it was easy to tell who the Christians were because they weren't celebrating with everyone else, especially people who previously did these things and no longer are involved in them. They couldn't participate in this flood of debauchery, right, which is another just great phrase from Peter. What happens when a fire burns down half the town or the rain doesn't fall on the crops, right? Who's to blame? Maybe those pesky Christians who wouldn't pay tribute to our gods. The Christians were hard to miss, right? To be a Christian was to be noticed. It's kind of like being a vegan, right? Now hear me out. <laughs> Let me take a sip here. <laughs> hear me out. Okay. Marcy and I were vegan for a couple months one time. Why is that funny? And uh, I'd get cheers if I was in a city right now saying that. But anyway, all right. We were vegan for a couple months. Um, we watched a documentary on Netflix about food. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it'll turn you vegan, right? You'll start eating plant-based, and you'll talk about, like, how much protein's in broccoli or whatever. So that's what we did. And I learned quickly that there was no hiding it, right? We were going to stand out if that's how we were going to be. Um, you know, people, our old friends, be like, let's go out, you know, and get chicken wings. It's like, no, I can't get chicken wings. And it's like, you know, it always became an issue. So I remember even at church potlucks, like, it was cool because I didn't have to eat, like, so-and-so's cooking anymore. But people wanted to talk about it. They'd be like, why are you eating meat? Like, are you okay? You know, like, and I'd be like, yeah, we're just not doing it right now. You know, we're just trying to do this vegan thing, whatever. And they're like, but where do you get your protein? That was the number one. Where do you get your protein, though? And then other people would just say, um, I would die if I didn't eat bacon at every meal. <laughs> I heard that a lot. That's just a, that's just a quote from Pastor Chad. There's nothing wrong with bacon. <laughs> he loves bacon. But uh, anyway, like there's no hiding that you're a vegan. I think Christianity should be similar. Like we should stand out like that. Um, maybe not because we're avoiding dairy, right? But it shouldn't be a secret that we're a bunch of Jesus freaks, right? So... We can see why throughout his letter, Peter keeps referring to the Christians as strangers in a strange land. Like this was their experience. One of my favorite writings from church history is a letter from a Christian, an early Christian to a Greek man who's interested um, in Christianity because it's kind of exploding throughout the world, right? And it's multiplying. And he, he asks, you know, asks of this Christian, like, what is, what's your guys' deal? What's with this new religion? 
why did it just appear now? You know, and it's you know not earlier in history. Like all these questions, and and the Christian responds to them in a letter that's great. It's called the Letter to Dionysius. Um, you should check it out. I'm going to read you kind of a big section here um, that describes, that explains what Christians were like. And this is like somewhere between 130 and 190 A.D., so only about 100 years after Peter wrote his letter here. All right. He says, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or customs. For they do not dwell somewhere in their own cities, nor do they use some strange language, nor do they practice a peculiar way of life. This teaching of theirs has been, not been found by any thought or reflection of inquisitive people, nor do they advocate human doctrine as some do. But while living in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each has obtained by lot, and while following the local customs in clothing and in diet and in the rest of life, they demonstrate the wonderful and most certainly strange character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but as aliens, they they share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their country, and every country is foreign. They marry like everyone. They bear children, but they do not expose their offspring, which just a quick aside, to expose offspring was this barbaric practice of leaving an infant that was unwanted in the wilderness to die. And Christians were known even early on for not doing that. They set a common table, but not a common bed. They happen to be in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend time upon the earth, but they have their citizenship in heaven. They obey the appointed laws, and in their own lives they surpass the law. They love all people, and by all people are persecuted. They are put to death, and they are made alive. They are poor and make many rich. They lack everything and have an abundance in everything. They are reviled, and they give blessing. They are insulted, and they give honor. When doing good, they are punished as evildoers, When punished, they rejoice as having received life. They are warred upon by the Jews as foreigners, and they are persecuted by the Greeks. And those who hate them are not able to state the reason for their hatred. I love that. Christians stand out, not by their clothing or their food choices, um, but by their love for others and their willingness to suffer for following Christ. Peter says in our verses, he says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They are surprised. So this tells us kind of one of two things, right? It tells us either they're watching very closely or Christians are just unable to be missed. Uh, Probably both. They notice that we are not joining in. We're so absolutely different that we're unable to be missed. Now, as I prepared this teaching, I was met with a bit of a haunting question in my head. Is this still true today? Do we seem that different to the world around us? Do we still stand out? And if so, for what? Let me share two ideas for you to consider this morning. One idea would be this. Maybe God has blessed us so much in America that we have been mostly free from persecution because our society is or was Christian or at least was started on Judeo-Christian values. 
So we are unique in the world, and maybe we should fight to keep it that way. Maybe that's even what our, what our mission is, to protect ourselves from suffering for the faith. So we don't suffer here because we are extra blessed. I don't know what that says about Christians throughout the rest of the world. Um, another idea to consider would be that maybe it isn't so much that we're extra blessed. Um, maybe, maybe it's that many Christians sell out and buy into a form of Christianity that allows us to live like Gentiles, to avoid suffering, and to blend in. If we were bold and shared the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel, um, it would cost us more. Maybe more than we're willing to have it cost us. Maybe more than we want to give up. Maybe we've compromised. Now maybe... It doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, I do think we are blessed here. But I worry that we've lost a proper perspective sometimes on suffering for Christ. And I worry about that second one because, to be honest, like I've done that. Right? I think if we, if we search our own hearts and our own actions, like maybe we'll find that in us. I, I've put some of my eggs in multiple baskets, right? So that just in case like the God... Thing doesn't work out. I'll still have a good life here, right? I'll store up treasures in heaven, but I also want to like have a really good life here because YOLO, you know, <laughs> right, Levi? YOLO. Nope. Okay. That was me being contextual. Okay. Um, I'm susceptible to living this way even throughout the week, right? I thank God that we have pastors who preach challenging sermons and confront us with the truth um, of the gospel because it's easy for me even throughout the week to begin, you know, storing up treasures on this earth and, and, and working for my, my life here, um, which, it, you know, it isn't evil to enjoy our lives. It isn't evil to, um, to work or anything like that, of course. But I think you guys know the difference, um, hopefully, that I'm, that I'm pointing out. How quickly our hearts want to forget God and begin to live as we see fit. Now we read the list that Peter gives, right? He says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And maybe, maybe we feel good about where we stand, right? There's at least a couple things on that list I've never done. Uh, but, but maybe we aren't, maybe we aren't looking close enough, right? If Peter made this list today, what might be on it? For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Americans want to do. Living in, what are the things today that we should be noticed for avoiding? Peter's list represents the lifestyle of those who have no hope for a future, right? All they have is their life here on this earth, so they're left to run after the worldly ideas, the worldly idols of pleasure, success, security, freedom. So what if these things come at the expense of other people? You know, what if other people are hurt in the process of me seeking after pleasure, success, security, freedom? In a world that says me first, forget your feelings, it's us versus them, and I'll do anything to get what I want, how are Christians called to live? Do you see the darkness that people are trapped in? And do you, on the other side, see the opportunity for us who have been called out of that darkness and into God's marvelous light? 
Because people are watching. What did Peter say? He said, enough. The time that has passed is enough for living in passions, lust, greed, getting drunk, getting high, loving money, hating people, saying me first. Enough. Let's surprise people by living as people who have been born again to an eternal hope. Remember when Peter said, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have? I hope so, because that was just like two weeks ago uh, in sermon time. But this is what that looks like, right? So the story of a Christian is one who is living their life, right? Living as they saw fit. And one day God shined a light into their life, right? Woke up their heart and created a believer out of them. He transformed you. And now you live for his will and no longer your flesh. We leave these old ways behind and we live for Christ. And that transformation does not go unnoticed, right? The world notices, you know, your friends notice that you used to live this way and now you live this way. Not that you're perfect, but that you're no longer living for sin. And so people notice this and they, they insult us and maybe even try to harm us in certain situations. And following in the footsteps of Christ, we suffer willingly with joy because we know that our hope is in heaven. We know that our eternity is secure with him and that there's a purpose to what God brings us through. And we respond to the one who persecutes us with love. And again, people notice this and they want a reason. Why is it that you return love for hate? And that's our opportunity. There's many opportunities along this road, but that's an opportunity for us to share the gospel with people. To tell them of everything that God's done in our lives and why we're willing to suffer for following him. Why it's the most important thing to us. Why is our mission to share the gospel so important? Well, Peter's going to tell us here, he says, because a judgment is coming. Now we're getting to an interesting verse. I want you to follow along very carefully here, um, 5 and 6. As I read it, Peter says this. He says, but they will give an account, they being the people who insult you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge both the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the, way, judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what do we see here? I think the point here is that we see a reversal of fortune, both for those who are in Christ and those who are not. The point here is death is not the end. Now, Greeks rarely taught any kind of accountability or consequences um, after death for how they lived. So the Greek looking in on Christianity is wondering, what good is this way of life, right? In life, as a Christian, you're restricted from pleasure, as they see it, and then you die like everyone else. But Peter here is saying, no, death is not the end. It will not exempt a person from the judgment of, the judgment of God. Despite how things look now, God is going to make it right in the end. He's saying, take heart. Those who are persecuting you will be judged in death. So let God handle that. You keep loving your enemies as the Savior told you to. You keep returning good for evil. You keep submitting to the government. 
and to your masters, God will settle his accounts in the end. Okay, so who are the dead, right? It says in our verse here that this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, um, which is definitely an interesting phrase. Now that we understand kind of the reversal of fortune and what Peter means overall, um, what the overall point is, let's take a closer look at who the dead might be. Now there are like five or six options I found. Um, about three of them are just total heresy, so I'm not even going to like go there. Um, they involve like second chances for people and things like that. I just don't think are even worth really considering. But there's two I, I bring before you this morning. Um, the first option sees the dead as referring to those um, who died before Christ but believed in the coming Messiah, right? This would have been Old Testament, so to speak, believers before Christ, right? The idea here would then be that after he died, Christ went to them and proclaimed that it was finished. So pre- preaching the gospel would be, it is, it is finished, I've accomplished it. Sin and death are dealt with, and the time has come to live in the Spirit. It's a vindication of all those who came before but believed in Christ before his coming. The second option is kind of the one I lean towards, um, also worth considering. This would be, this would see the dead as believers who had died since Christ. Okay, so if this is the case, Peter is assuring the church that their friends and their family members who had suffered and died and appeared to the world to have lost, right, because they died, um, they are in fact now alive with the Spirit of God. And I think that would have been a major encouragement to people in the church um, early on, for sure. But neither option really changes the point Peter's making to, those, to these Christians. He says this, he says, For this is why the gospel is preached. And then he says that we might live in the Spirit the way God does. What Peter's saying is the reason the gospel is preached is to prepare people to meet their Creator, Right? and to be judged by him. The gospel not only has value in this life, but the next. So there's one way to be confident in death, and that's to take hold of the only solution, the only lifeboat that God's given us, which is his son, Jesus. Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. So just like I followed my dad through the snow um, from one footstep to the next, we are to follow Christ in this life and into the next, being made alive in the Spirit. This is why the gospel has been preached. I think I'll, I'll close our time this morning by reading just a little bit more from the letter to Dionysius, um, just a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ, written by an early Christian. He says this, Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate or reject or bear a grudge against us, but he was patient and bore with us. Having mercy, he himself experienced the penalty of our sin. He himself gave his own son a ransom on our behalf, the holy for the lawless, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else in that one's righteousness could cover up our sin? And who else than in the Son of God alone could our sins and ungodliness possibly be made right? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the sins of many should be concealed in the one righteous and the righteousness of the one should make right many sinners. 
Amen? All right, let's, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for sending your son to pay the price for our sin. I thank you for sending him to accomplish what we could not through his sinless life and perfect death. Give us hearts that live for you. Give us opportunities to stand out for following you, Lord God. Help us to be strong in that. Help us to be noticed and help us to be ready to give an answer, Lord, not to have every possible answer that anyone would ask, but help us to be ready to tell our story um, of you making us alive in your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.